this selected shorts, a sea monster, a widow, and a woman of a certain age make journeys of discovery. We follow characters from the surface to the depths, from grief to acceptance, from middle age to whatever comes next. Join our readers, Natasha Rothwell, Kelly O'Hara, and me, Meg Wallitzer. You're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. Life is full of changes, whether we like it or not. Some transformations are really gradual, like the passage from childhood to old age. You might not even see those changes until later, looking back at photos, and then you're like, wait, that's me? Some transformations come about because of great joy or deep grief. And some take place because of totally unexpected encounters. You might be just going along, living your life, and you meet someone, and then there's a big swerve. On this show, a playful fantasy, a domestic dilemma, and a private odyssey help us adjust to the idea. Our first story is a favorite that we're sharing again, Seth Freed's Sea Monster. We wouldn't call it old, though the main characters may predate recorded time. On the surface, we're on familiar territory, a long-married couple exploring their relationship. But then suddenly they begin to reveal things about themselves that they never shared before, and both they and the marriage are transformed. Sea Monster is performed by Natasha Rothwell. Rothwell is known for her work on Insecure and more recently can be seen in the satirical television series The White Lotus. Here she is with Seth Freed's Sea Monster. In a previous life, she'd been a monster living on the ocean floor. She remembered herself well, a coiled mass of dark tentacles, her mouths a series of black razored beaks. It was a secret she'd always intended to keep until she abruptly told her husband about it one night at dinner. (laughs) He had been about to take a sip of beer, but instead lowered his glass back down to the table. They were seated outdoors at a place called Valleys on a hot summer night the flow of their fellow city dwellers on the sidewalk, embellishing the sudden stillness at their table. She had just finished her second martini when she confessed it. (laughs) She set her coupe glass down but held onto it, staring at her fingers on the stem with what looked like regret. Her face flushed. Her husband only smiled, waiting for some indication of what was expected of him. He'd never made a great secret of the fact that he'd once been a sardine. (laughs) Though he had also never disgusted with her in detail. After all, the subject of past lives seemed to irritate her. Nothing bothered her more than being stuck in line at the drugstore while two elderly patrons discussed how they had once been apes, chewing leaves, rustling the canopy. Our was a gibbon, one would say. Her wide eyes daring anyone to say otherwise. I flew through the trees like a shot. When she'd been single, men had always delivered her their prepared speeches of how they'd been leopards or eagles. 
going on and on about the feel of the jungle loam under their paws or the thrill of spotting a startled mouse from 2,000 feet up. Even if the stories were true, she found them pathetic. Not only because in her life as a monster, she had known a strength that made the sly agility of eagles and jungle cats seem like the panicked scurrying of insects, but because she had always told herself that past lives had no bearing on the present, that dwelling on them was only a kind of useless nostalgia. On her first date with her husband, he had inadvertently revealed in the first five minutes that he was once a sardine. Right away, he stopped what he was saying, tilted his head back, his mouth hanging open at the unhappy realization he hadn't thought to make something up better. <laughs> she never told him, but it was in that moment she decided to see him again. It wasn't just his endearing and reflexive honesty. His look of embarrassment also suggested to her that his previous life was not a point of pride that would need to be discussed again and again. But now, after four years of marriage, she broached the subject on her own. Who could say why? Of course, there were the martinis, which she drunk quickly, in the heat. Perhaps the cold gin and brine had been enough to bring back life alone at the bottom of the ocean. Up here, there was a constant press of passers-by on the sidewalk. She ignored it as a man passing their table swore and laughed into his phone. The siren of a passing ambulance rattled her silverware, but left her unfazed. Whereas in her previous life, she would have flung herself at the slightest provocation. Maybe that's what made the urge to mention it unstoppable. The memory of that fierce solitude compared to the put-upon weariness that she felt now at the end of the day. The elevator in her office building was broken, so every trip up to accounting had been a four-flight slog reminding her of how difficult it was to pull oneself through a field of gravity with nothing to buoy the body. <laughs> but the naked air, back in the icy black of the ocean floor, her body had been able to pull at the space around her like a cloth. She had known how to tear through it, wrap it around her, and perch in a swirl of it. The world had been a palpable emptiness that at any moment she could spring out into like an arrow willing itself into flight. And even though all of this was the exact opposite of how she felt now, tired, hot, the fabric of her blouse sticking to the small of her back, it was as if that strength and freedom, because it belonged to her once, was hers forever. And maybe it was the urgency of that feeling that caused her to lean over the table at the cafe now and touch her husband's arm, expanding her confession to explain that she had been a creature of unthinkable strength and violence, sucking up the cloudy remains of pulped bodies in deep caverns without light. Her husband blinked his small, trusting eyes and was almost ready to laugh until he saw the stricken look on her face. Well, he said, placing her hand on his cheek. We're here now. She tugged his ear before taking back her hand. She was grateful for those words, 
But the truth was, behind her own insistence that one's past life had no bearing on the present, was the lurking fear that perhaps it did. When she was younger, she loved a man who attributed his fear of thunderstorms to the fact that he'd once been a golden retriever. Her father had been some long extinct species of wading bird, and when he wasn't paying attention, he would sometimes draw up his right leg to stand on one foot. Her mother had been the fantail goldfish in the gilded table aquarium of a 17th century French aristocrat. And now whenever she swam in the family's backyard pool, she had a way of darting down from the surface of the water with an awkward but powerful waggle of her backside. <laughs> These echoes of former lives troubled her because her clearest memory of her existence as a monster more than her strength had been her pure and all-consuming selfishness. So while the sight of her grandfather standing with a cup of coffee and flannel trousers in the kitchen, his right foot resting unselfconsciously on the thigh of his left leg, was seen as charming to those that knew him, to her, it was an indictment against her deepest nature. Sitting alone in her apartment holding a book in her lap, she was sometimes exhilarated by the memory of all that apathy and solitude. The book she was only pretending to read would start to feel lighter. If she let it go, it would have begun to float. Her heart pounding, she would shake herself out of it, reaching for her phone to call a friend or text some small thing to her husband in an effort to pull herself back up to the present. These feelings of the past felt so much stronger than her simple love for her friends and family, and even her husband, that she was so often sick with dread that perhaps the memory of her selfishness was more real than her love. Whenever her husband spontaneously declared his affection for her, as was his tendency, she would let her pleasure at his sentiment be dulled by the question of how much happier it would have made her if she were not secretly and more truly a monster buried beneath the ocean. She was, she told herself, an imposter, only going through the motions of affections that weren't really her own, but the product of a here and now that was so oppressively complex and befuddling to resist. She was quiet throughout the rest of dinner, and in their bed at night, she pulled herself through the dark and into her husband's arms where she wept and apologized. He asked her what she was apologizing for, but just held her when she couldn't explain it. Crying in his arms, she thought of how vulnerable he must have been in his life as a sardine and felt an overpowering need to protect him, scoop him up in her hands, little fish, and hold him to her chest. She thought, as if pleading with herself, of course I love him. She felt suddenly proud of that love, defiant. Recalling her strange confession at dinner, her husband thought he finally understood and gave her shoulders a squeeze. It must have been lonely, he said, being a sea monster. At least we sardines had each other. She had to hold back a sob as she said, I would have eaten you all if I had the chance. <laughs> to her surprise, this made her husband laugh. I don't think so, he said. My school was fast. 
and we could all change directions at the same time. And I'm still not sure how we did it. The two argued about whether or not she'd been fast enough to catch him until she finally joined him in his laughter and gently bit his shoulders, wrapping her legs around him as she did so. If her legs had turned into tentacles in that moment, she didn't think it would have surprised him in the least. She may have never said the words sea monsters to him, but everything of importance he already seemed to know. If she had once been immense and ruthless, he had been small and quick. Just like that, her old solitude seemed harmless, one form of life among many. The two fell asleep and were drawn into the memories of their former lives, as was common for dreamers. Already she was thousands of miles away, but still could perceive her husband's twitching as he slept. In his part of the ocean, he was darting, giddy with panic, snapping his way with his school. Meanwhile, she unfurled herself on the ocean floor, giving herself space, her countless limbs spreading and undulating in preparation of something powerful and mysterious. Natasha Rothwell performed Seth Freed's Sea Monster. I'm Meg Wallitzer. I love the way Freed makes the extraordinary ordinary in this story. The concept of people inhabiting other life forms is mentioned in a deadpan and casual way, but we're not deadpan at all hearing it. And in fact, we get an open thrill imagining ourselves as something other. I remember being really young and realizing that this person I was, the way I felt, the way I saw the world, was going to be it forever. Wow, that was a blow. But maybe I had it wrong all that time, and Seth Freed has it right. How do we know we're not surrounded by schools of fish every day? At the coffee shop, or the laundromat, or while waiting for the elevator, or listening to a radio show or podcast? Our second story comes from Selected Short's recently published anthology, Small Odysseys. It's a collection of newly commissioned stories from some of our favorite writers, Mira Jacob is a novelist, memoirist, and cultural critic. Her graphic memoir, Good Talk, was shortlisted for the National Book Critics Circle Award, and she's also the author of the novel, The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing. In Death by Printer, she brings us a story that's familiar, pointing out our dependence on technology and our haplessness when it fails. But then the story reveals itself as a tale about change, acceptance, and something just beyond either. Reader Rita Wolf has voiced many narratives for us, She's a Royal Court Theatre alum whose stage work stateside has included Homebody Kabul, Stuff Happens, and An Ordinary Muslim. Her film work includes Stephen Freer's My Beautiful Laundrette. Here she is with Death by Printer. The first time she finds Terry Fixit 303 on YouTube, Shilpa is near tears. The chemical stink of her jammed printer burns the air, and for a moment she hopes this is it. The moment she'll begin to die in earnest. That in two years some pinch-eyed medical examiner will write down metastatic lung cancer, and in 70 more people at dinner parties will moan, they used printing cartridges back then. (laughs) Sad for their dumber, earlier animal selves. Stealing my death, is it? 
she hears Asmat say, because this is the first survival skill Shilpa's mastered in the months since her wife of 30 years died. The ability to hear things Asmat hasn't said. Her second survival skill is never saying anything back. Asmat would know how to fix the printer, how to save the Harrod ficus, how to stop the live wire of ants in the pantry. Shilpa only knows how to Google and clicks on one of five videos that come up when she searches Epson 720 Printer Jam. The high, sticky child's voice startles her. Hi, I'm Terry, and I fix things. If your Epson HP 720 is jammed, watch this video. On the screen, a flashing printer exactly like hers. The camera wobbles as if held by a drunk. To make the paper come out, do like this. Small fingers press two buttons near the top. Shilpa squints. For how long? For a long, 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 long time, the voice says. Shilpa pauses the video, walks to the printer, pushes the buttons. She thinks about how, in the end, she'd held down the morphine drip for whole minutes as Asmat gnashed, hating the nurse who said it was unnecessary, that doses were timed, and your sister is getting what she needs. The printer beeps, makes a whirring noise, and from some deep crevice produces a crumpled sheet of paper. It sits in the tray, miraculous as a newborn. Shilpa blinks at it, prize rising painfully in her chest. It's been so long since she fixed anything. She walks straight out of the room, makes a real dinner, and takes a bath to try to make the feeling last. But later, as she hears low laughter from the apartment next door, she remembers the last time she tried to touch her wife. Asmat's dry grimace, her own hasty retreat, how they disappeared into their phones after. Shilpa's family, she is sure, would have been vindicated at last. What better fate for the daughter who'd chosen Berkeley over Chennai? That useless Muslim woman over all of them. Shilpa gets up, goes down the hall, turns on the light. The paper is still there. The video frozen. She hits play, and the view spins to a boy's face. He looks tannish, all freckles and gums. See? Fixed it, he smiles. I'm Terry, and I fix things. Thanks for watching. Subscribe to Terry Fix It 303 for more, the screen prompts. Shilpa snorts. Subscribe to what? A click finds 12 more videos. Among them, how to unlock the bathroom door from the outside. How to get chocolate off the couch. How to order at Subway. How to vacuum a vacuum. Single digits views, the last posted over four years ago. She subscribes. <laughs> Tuesday nights are ice cream nights. Shilpa sits in the car outside 7-Eleven, scanning for former students, or worse, couple friends who might feel compelled to invite her to dinner, like she was the one everyone liked, the one who could explain Titan's underground ocean or how we only see stars as they existed in the past because of how long it takes their light to reach us? People like you, Asmat insists. Shilpa leaves the car. Inside, she finds her pint of pistachio and almost runs into the large man wearing an Orbit Zone sweatshirt. Greg, she says. At the funeral, Asmat's boss had given a speech about Asmat's giddiness on launch days, her contagious laugh, now, he looks confused. I'm 
Asmat Hassan's Shilpi, he winces. Of course, good to see you. You too, she says, unsure. Greg looks older to her, blurrier. How are Catherine and the boys? Fine, he swallows. Good, well, uh, tell them I said she left me. What? Shilpa smiles, hoping he's joking. Greg's face turns pink, then pinker. Catherine, last month. I'm sorry. Oh, it's, you know. Shilpa doesn't know. She doesn't want to know. Still, she hears about the college ex-boyfriend, the not-really-work trip, the boys petitioning to live with him. Goddamn Facebook! Greg growls, and she realizes he's drunk. Uh, I, I, I should go, she says. Sure, sure, he nods. Well, well, well I, I hope... Uh... But she doesn't hear what he hopes as she walks quickly to the cashier and then to her car, where the carton rolls across the passenger seat as she hurries home. How to change a light bulb is up first. Shilpa watches five seconds of Terry fix at 303, hovering over a socket before clicking out. How to unlock the bathroom door from the outside is next and oddly satisfying. Her breath whooshing out as the boy pops the latch with a Starbucks card. In How to Do the Laundry, he insists OxyClean gets out everything, smiling like a paid idiot. She buys some the next day, stopping at Subway on her way home, where the grim teen asking, Bread? almost undoes her before she remembers Terry Fixit 303 saying, All it is is a bunch of choices. She eats the sum of hers in the parking lot. Soon, she doesn't even watch the videos, but listens to them on a constant loop. Terry Fixit 303 babbling from her home office as she makes dinner, folds her underwear, brushes her teeth. Nights she can't sleep, she plays How to Clean Under the Bed until the stars through her blinds grow soft. A month later, she's chopping garlic when she hears the sound of burglars breaking in. The noise comes from the back of the apartment, a tumult of shuffling and shushing. Shilpa grips her knife. Whoa, she hears, then giggling. Oh, hold the camera still. She turns her head slowly to look down the hall. The computer screen flickers in her home office. She puts down the knife, feeling foolish. Terry Fixit 303 is four years older in the newly uploaded video. It's strange to see him on a park bench, thinner, greasier. In his hands, a small folded piece of paper. Someone else holds the camera. Thank you to my one subscriber for subscribing, he says. <laughs> then squeals, hey, I'm Terry and I fix things. The camera holder guffaws, Shilpa flinches. Terry Fixit 303 pinches from a baggie in his lap and smiles hard into the lens. This, he says, is how to roll a J. <laughs> that night, Shilpa cannot sleep. She shouldn't have watched the whole video, but she had wanted to, she supposes, to see how he'd changed. The funny part was that he hadn't really. His face blooming with light as he explained grinders, indica, how to roll a perfect cylinder of something called Humboldt Kush. It was the end, though, that got her. Hope this helps you sleep, Shilpa, ass mat, he said, blowing a plume of white, and she crimsoned while he laughed. It shouldn't have even mattered to her. It wouldn't have mattered to Asmat. Some strange boy turning into a smirking teenager was hardly a tragedy. 
Still, she churns with the memory of their names on his lips, butchered but together, said aloud for anyone to hear the blessing of it. You should sleep, Asmat says. She cannot. The cardboard box sits in the closet, filled with things she hadn't known how to dispose of. Asmat's diplomas, her favorite scarf, the fancy vape they'd bought her for chemo, the rolling papers she'd preferred, the bud suspended in a clear plastic box. Shilpa cracks the lid, and her wife comes back to her swiftly, her big teeth, her thighs, the smell of sandalwood between them. She remembers their first kiss in college, finding Asmat's mouth with her own in the darkened stacks. How it felt like finding a revolution, an American college, a Pakistani girl. A kiss, she told herself, wasn't a kiss, even when they didn't stop. Her first step toward a life so good and impossible, she thought it might belong to someone else. Back in her home office, she plays the video with the sound off. She watches Terry fix it 303's hands and moves her own. Her first attempt falls apart, her second too. Her third comes out a pouchy worm, too wet where her spit seals it, but she lights it anyway, holding a scratch of smoke as the boy mouths, Shilpa Asmat. Asmat, she corrects loudly and jumps. Her wife's name moves through the smoke. And suddenly, the room is alive with all the things Shilpa wants to tell her. How proud she was to be the revolution with Asmat. How hollow it feels without her. How Greg and Catherine have split up. How the bread at Subway smells like feet but doesn't taste like them. (laughs) How the best part of how to vacuum a vacuum is watching a thing fix itself. How sometimes she thinks Terry Fix-It 303 is her very own North Star. The light from his videos leaving all those years ago to find her. Rita Wolf performed Mira Jacobs' Death by Printer. I'm Meg Wallitzer. This story beautifully melds the spiritual with the practical. We can feel Shilpa remaking herself around her relationship to her space and the absence but still the presence of her wife. We talked with Wolf backstage at Symphony Space about how she approached the reading. As an actor who did not train anywhere, I don't have a theatre training, I have learned such an incredible amount from the eclectic group that read in any given selected shorts event. In today's piece, I read the piece first of all, and I make sure that I do my homework with pronunciation. But then I see, okay, how many actual characters are there in this? And sometimes writers will mark the difference between narrative and character, and sometimes they won't. So then it's up to the actor to find that. And the same with things like tense, past, present, future. Is it all written in one period or is it, are you flashing back? Are you flashing forward? So those kinds of things I always try and get straight because it's not a good one to be hit with after the fact. It's all happened so quickly. It's there and it's gone. That was Rita Wolf speaking to us backstage at Symphony Space. 
when we return, growing old gracefully. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. We're looking at transformation on this show. One thing we hope will transform you is our first-ever anthology, Small Odysseys. We commissioned new works from 35 favorite writers, including Lauren Groff, Dave Eggers, and Carmen Maria Machado. And we got back stories about unicorns, dandelions, iPhones, and the perfect birthday gift to give in the advent of the apocalypse. If you love great new fiction, pick up Small Odysseys, available at your favorite indie bookshop. Our final story about embracing transformation and change is another work from Small Odysseys. It's by a writer who's been a part of our literary family for most of her writing career, Miley Malloy. She's the author of novels including Do Not Become Alarmed and the short story collections Half in Love and Both Ways is the Only Way I Want It. In this story, period piece, the transformation experienced by the central character touches beautifully on an essential topic that's been gone over a lot in women's magazines. A woman begins to come to terms, her terms, with aging. Our reader, Kelly O'Hara, is a musical theater sensation whose many credits include Kiss Me Kate and The King and I. She can currently be seen on HBO's The Gilded Age. So she's used to creating strong women characters charting their own course. Here she is with Period Piece. The fires had already started before the wedding began. Power was out up and down the coast, and the air had a smoky haze. But the hotel looking over the Pacific had a generator, and everyone said it was fine. The fires were farther away. It was California. It was normal. The wedding was for a much younger colleague, and Liza had gone alone. The story was that her husband, Russell, had to work and stay with Jasper and the dog, which was true but also it would have made her self-conscious if he'd come. There would be too many in-jokes about work, and there would be the drunkenness of the very young. Liza's own parents had divorced when she was 13, leaving her with just enough faith in the institution to try it herself, but not enough to believe it could work for anyone else. She had stayed and danced for a while, until a young cousin of the bride said, I can't believe you're still here with us. And then Liza had come to her senses and walked barefoot back to her room in the dark, carrying her strappy sandals. There was a faint orange glow beyond the ridge on her left and the black ocean stretching out on her right. She went to sleep and woke an hour later to her phone, making a strange noise. She couldn't read the message without her glasses, so she got up, stumbling through the unfamiliar hotel room, looking for her bag. Her vision wasn't bad enough yet to make her keep her glasses nearby. She stubbed her toe on a chair and swore. 
Then she reached into the familiar depths of the bag, past the wallet, the lip sunscreen, the wedding invitation. When she put the glasses on, she could read her phone. Mandatory evacuation zone, and then some confusing parameters. She called the bride, who somehow picked up from the dance floor. A Stevie Wonder song was playing. Where was she keeping her phone? In her dress? We're fine, the bride said. Did you look at the map? The mandatory zone goes out to a tiny point on the coast and we're in the point. They're being overcautious, getting people out of the way. You can totally leave tomorrow. Liza stood in the hotel room thinking about risks she had taken in her life. There wasn't much time to think about all of them, just a quick highlight reel of motorcycles and drunks and water crashing over her head. And then she said, I'm going to the airport. Does anybody need a ride? She listened to the bride call out the question over the dance floor. Then the cheerful voice came back, nope, all good, be safe. So Liza pulled on her jeans and stuffed her flowy dress and sandals into her bag. She looked at the evacuation map again, and then she got into the rental car. From the parking lot, she could hear the wedding. Uptown Funk was playing. Girls, hit your hallelujah, hoo. And the girls were singing along with the hoo. The road was narrow and winding and moonless, and the local radio station had survivalists calling in, people who'd prepared for fires, who seemed kind of happy about them, so Eliza turned it off. She was sweating as she drove. She'd bought three new comforters in the last two years, thinking none of them could regulate heat. She'd start out too cold at bedtime, but by morning she would have them shoved off, and she bought a bambe duvet, a silk one, a weighted blanket that promised to soothe her anxiety, her fear, her rage. Nothing worked. Then her friend Caroline showed her a picture on her phone. It was a graph running from left to right along the axis of time. It started out fairly even before marching steeply uphill and then turning into a child's furious scribbles, a polygraph test taken by a bad liar, or the path of someone doing aerial tricks in a plane. Caroline was 10 years older and she was Liza's Virgil, her guide to the unknown, a guide who sometimes rolled her eyes at Liza's obliviousness. Here's what your hormones are doing, Caroline had said. They start out pretty even, see? Here they peak, that's when people want babies. After that, they just go nuts, jumping up and down. It makes you feel insane. It makes you want to destroy your life. Liza had shown the diagram to Russell on the subway. Russell had glanced at her phone and said, yeah, that seems about right. <laughs> That's so reductive, Liza had said. I am not my hormones. Okay, Russell said. Jasper had been wearing his headphones beside them. He was maybe only half listening, but he was nine. He was always listening. When Liza swore in front of him and apologized, he said, I know all the bad words, Mom. I just don't use them. <laughs> Caroline had given her the name of a clinic, and Liza went on Halloween, the only day she could get an appointment. A young doctor dressed as Hermione from Harry Potter <laughs> told her about a drug for restless leg syndrome that also seemed to control hot flashes. I thought restless leg syndrome was made up, Liza said. Yeah, yeah, it could be, uh, Dr. Hermione said. But the medication might let you sleep without sweating through all the covers. Well, what about hormone therapy? Liza had asked her. Hermione tilted her head in consideration. How did you feel about that graph your friend showed you? She asked. Liza thought for a moment and then said, It made me remember that once, when the line was flat, 
All I cared about was swimming and books and horses and dogs, and I was really happy. And then, around the point where the graph starts spiking, I started doing stupid stuff for men. Like seriously stupid stuff. And right now I feel completely insane and ready to burn it all down. Like leave my family, like have an affair, not, not that I have a candidate. I'd be really happy for that scribble to just flatline again. So I wouldn't care about anything but swimming and books and dogs. Hermione said, yeah, yeah, I think you're gonna like the other side, honestly. It might be better just to power through and get it over with and think about this pill for this wedding. And the pills worked. But she'd forgotten to bring them to the wedding. She'd remembered her reading glasses and her noise-canceling headphones for the plane. She'd remembered her blister band-aids in case the sandals killed her feet. But this was her first trip since getting the prescription and she didn't yet have the habit of packing it. So now the collar of her t-shirt was damp and the back of her knees. California was on fire because no one in power believed in climate change. And she had a nine-year-old at home and she was once again filled with rage. It made her want to scream. She wanted a solution beyond a drug for a syndrome that might not even exist, a drug she had failed to bring with her. The winding road finally took her to the freeway and safely around the evacuation zone to the airport. No one else seemed to be fleeing. Everything seemed calm. At SFO, she slept in the terminal, lying on the floor against the windows with her head on her bag. She woke from a dream about trying to escape from a collapsing house, but at least she wasn't sweating. So maybe this was the answer, sleep on the hard floor under a light jacket, but the hip she had slept on felt stiff and bruised, and she walked around the airport until it was time for her flight, steering her rolling bag beside her. On the plane, the overhead bin was full, and a man was in the aisle seat of her row talking on his phone. She found another bin, when she got the man's attention, he stood, aggrieved, to let her into the middle seat. Then he dropped back down, he kept his elbow on the armrest and his legs spread. Liza caught the eye of the tiny woman in the window seat who had her small bag beneath the seat in front of her. Yeah, the man was saying on the phone, it's just a bridge loan until the financing comes through. No, no, yeah, there's some chance of losing it, but it's pretty small, I think it's a safe bet. Right, sure. Liza sat thinking about whether men White men, her age and older, had gotten worse. It seemed like there was an urgency that came with the fear that their world domination might come to an end. It made them primitive, rude, aggressive, determined to take up as much space as possible. Something visceral in this man wanted to elbow everyone else out of the way. He objected to the loss of power. He wasn't going to cede the armrest without a fight. When the plane landed, he took his things down from the overhead bin and stood blocking the aisle, letting no one else stand. Liza stood on the curb at JFK in a haze of cigarette smoke and exhaust. Russell had rented a car and taken Jasper and the dog to his brother's house on Long Island for the weekend, so they picked her up on the way home. It was a nice thing but she was still furious at the man on the plane and she told herself not to take out her anger on Russell. He was generous and kind. He had blind spots, but so did she. Then why was she seething 
unable to speak. He lifted her rolling bag into the trunk and she buckled herself into the passenger seat. She turned to smile at Jasper in the back, trying to keep her voice light, warm, cheerful. Hey, kiddo, she said. Hi, he said. Were you in a fire? No, she said. It wasn't that close to the wedding. Everyone else stayed and, and danced. Jasper nodded and went back to reading his book. Solly wriggled his way from the back seat into her lap, tail wagging with happiness and licked her ears. Liza put her arms around him and blinked to keep from crying. Russell got into the car and pulled out into the fray. Caroline had said sex would become a problem, but they didn't need to talk about it until the time came. There wasn't any reason to go into all that yet. Liza had protested. She'd said, now you're scaring me. Just tell me. Caroline had shaken her head and said they would deal with it later. Now Liza thought Caroline was right. She didn't need to know how bad it might get. Russell jockeyed for position in the traffic, like everyone in the city, on the streets, on the sidewalk, on the subway, in schools, in housing, at work. So many people wanting the same things. Liza closed her eyes and leaned against the window, and they got home to an unseasonably warm Sunday afternoon. Sun through the windows, leftover bagels Russell had brought back from his brothers, Liza stretching out on the couch with a middle-grade novel manuscript she was editing. But she didn't start. She just listened to the sounds of the apartment. Jasper lay on his stomach on the rug beside her. He was writing a graphic novel about a boy and his pet robot, an assignment from his fourth-grade teacher. Solly had curled up beside him. Can I read your book when it's finished? Liza asked him. No, Jasper said. Or... Yes, but I want positive feedback only, please. <laughs> That's not how feedback works, she said. If something confuses a reader, that helps you to make it better. Okay, then you don't have to read it, he said. <laughs> Liza thought about arguing the point further, then decided against it. She reached for her reading glasses to do her own work. She'd always had good vision. And for a while, she'd thought there just weren't any books she liked lately and that the new skin cream she was using was kind of miraculous. One morning a few months ago, she turned to Russell in the bathroom and said, are you seeing this? She pointed to her face. All these little smile lines are just gone. Russell had given a kind of shrugging assent. She'd bought more of the skin cream before telling Caroline that Instagram had gotten more interesting than novels. And Caroline had handed her own glasses over, saying, put them on. So Liza did, and it all became clear. Even Instagram was better when you could see it. She finished the first chapter of the manuscript, making sure to include positive feedback. Solly plopped his head on her stomach and gazed at her hopefully, so she got up to take him to the park. In the park, Jasper dashed ahead, and Solly on the leash danced with gratitude beside her. Liza had made herself essential to these three male characters. She fed them, mostly, and found their lost items and kept their calendars and their stashes of treats. But which had come first, their need or hers to be needed? And what to do when their dependency made her insane and resentful? She refocused on the joy in the dog's dancing steps, on Jasper's bright shout over his shoulder, on the sun on her face. 
The firefighters were gaining control in California. The evacuation zone had shrunk. The bride had been right. And Liza was home. She had everything she wanted. She would make herself grateful. Her phone rang with her mother's name on the screen, and she picked it up, keeping an eye on Jasper, who had asked to pet someone's pug. He was a good city child, carefully trained. Hey, she said. I had a dream about you, her mother said. Weren't you in California with the fires? I was, Liza said. I got an earlier flight home. Oh, good, her mother said. A toddler in a yellow coat ran out to greet Solly, thrusting tiny hands into the dog's face, and Liza reeled in the leash. Solly was gentle, but no one wants hands shoved in their face. A nanny pulled the toddler away, and the nanny and Liza smiled nervously at each other. Jasper wandered ahead out of earshot. Hey, when did you stop having periods? Liza asked her mother on the phone. Oh, I don't know, her mother said. Did you sweat? Did you want to burn everything to the ground? No, her mother said. Why? So it was just easy? No symptoms? Well, I was taking birth control pills, and my doctor said I could just keep taking them, and it would see me through it. Oh, Liza said. So when did you stop? I didn't. Liza listened to the silence on the line and thought about her mother's dewy skin, her slim yoga body, her apparent agelessness. What do you mean, you didn't? I mean, I just kept taking them, her mother said. They're very low dose. But you're 70. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me, her mother said, an edge in her voice. You're taking them now every day? Well, they don't work if you don't take them every day. Well, where do you get them? In the mail. Isn't there a breast cancer risk or heart disease or something? That breast cancer study was flawed, her mother said. Anyway, my mother lived to be 100. Sea levels are rising. Breast cancer is not my worry. Mom, don't say that. It's jinxy. Will you please talk to your doctor? There was a brief silence in which Liza could feel her mother's stubborn resistance. Fine her mother said, but she didn't mean it. When Liza got home, Russell was chopping the tops of little red and yellow peppers. My mother is still taking birth control pills, she said. Is she sleeping with someone? He asked. <laughs> Liza looked at him, wondering if he was serious. She's not in danger of getting pregnant, she said. She just didn't want to go through this thing. And then she never stopped taking them. That's why her skin looks so good. Russell thought about it. Does it? Yes, Liza said. She's like a vampire, except with estrogen instead of blood. So it's working? Russell asked. Unless it's giving her heart disease. Oh, Russell said. Well, he went back to slicing the peppers, each one in two. Your mom does whatever she wants. And that was true. In the morning before school, Liza told Jasper to pour himself a bowl of cereal. When she got to the table, he was reading a parenting book about why your children might enrage you and how to deal with it when they did. The writer is talking about her own kids, Jasper said. I bet that's super annoying. Well, maybe those kids know how lucky they really are to have a mother who's taught so much about how to be a good mom, Liza said. Also, she probably asked them if it was okay. Jasper set the book down, picked up his spoon. The kids really couldn't say no, though. I'm sure they could. 
Jasper shook his head as if she didn't understand the imbalance of power. You have your backpack, she asked him, and your homework? The backpack was upstairs, the homework missing, finally discovered under the bed. Then Jasper had to pee and brush his teeth. By the time they got out of the house, they were late. Why do ninjas always wear black, Jasper asked as they dodged people on the sidewalk. So they can sneak up on people at night, Liza said with some confidence. Come on, we have to hurry. But what about in the day, he asked. I don't know, she said. Maybe it's just good to have a uniform. Then they don't have to think about what to wear. She thought about the ads for fancy scrubs in the subway, modeled by hot young doctors and how she'd been tempted to buy some lately. Ninjas kind of wore scrubs. Jasper's classroom was up five flights of stairs, and he and Liza did it in a run. One of the aides frowned at her for being late. She kissed Jasper goodbye and saw him merge into the classroom among the bright winter clothes and the small, sweet, musty-smelling heads. He didn't look back. Then she ran down the five flights, across the street, and into the subway in her down coat. Just as the train doors were closing, she slipped into a car and looped her elbow around a pole. She felt her upper lip start to sweat. Here it came, the unbearable heat. At the same moment, with horror, she felt her period start, that telltale warm wetness. The train hadn't started yet. She could just get to the bathroom at her office. She could deal with the blood. It felt like a lot. She decided to take off her coat and tie it around her waist to solve both problems at once. As she got one arm free, she had a flash of the bathroom in her middle school, the shiny industrial green walls, her old pink winter coat with the dirty sleeves. She had to shift her bag to get the other arm out of her sleeve, and as she did so, the train jerked forward, throwing her face first into the pole. A burst of light blotted out her vision. She thought she had broken her nose. She got her arm back around the pole and felt her face carefully. Her hand came away wet and red. She searched in her bag for a tissue as the salty blood ran down her lip into her mouth. Are you okay? A young woman near her asked. The girl wore eyelash extensions so long that they looked like dancing spider legs. Liza nodded, the pain still bright behind her eyes. No, seriously, the young woman said. Yeah, Liza said, I'm fine. The car was not so crowded that anyone could miss seeing what happened. Two youngish men sat nearby in wool coats. They both looked studiously at the floor. The shoulders of the smaller guy shook helplessly. It's okay, Liza told him as she held a tissue against her nose. You can laugh. The guy sneaked a look at her with a little smile. He was handsome, with carefully maintained stubble. Once, a guy like him would have flirted with her. Now it was confusing. Was the smile because she'd become ridiculous? The cute vendor at the farmer's market who'd said she could have one more item to make it $20, any item, including him. Obviously that was a sales technique, but was it a flirty one? Or was he just humoring her because she was old? But maybe being old would be good. <laughs> maybe it would mean she could just do her work. For the longest time, people thought she was too young for her job. They questioned her, wanting to know how she got it. Did her family own the publishing company? But now she realized that she would go seamlessly from seeming too young for things to seeming too old for them. Her forehead throbbed. The windows of the train were dark and blurry. She found a mirror in her bag and saw a red mark on her forehead where she'd hit the pole. 
She also saw the vertical double wrinkle between her eyebrows, the number 11, that had uh, disappeared on her friends who had Botox. She contemplated it for a moment. On her last visit to the dermatologist to make sure she had no strange moles, the doctor had pointed to the little 11 and said, you want to do something about that? Liza said no. She'd earned that frown. She lowered the mirror to look at her nose, but the blood had stopped. The blood. <laughs> Again, the flash of middle school. Graffiti on the bathroom walls, some of it unsuccessfully scratched out. Shauna eats used toilet paper. Room of false privacy, of humiliation and bafflement. She put the mirror away and finished tying her jacket around her sweating waist. People on the train car had gone back to their phones. The girl with the eyelashes was looking at Instagram. A woman a little older than Liza gave her a sympathetic smile. Hello, my comrade. Liza smiled back ruefully. At work, Liza went straight to the bathroom, jacket still tied around her waist. No one was in the stalls, and she was grateful. She hung her bag on the hook and shimmied down her pants to see how bad the blood was, and nothing was there. Her underwear were as clean as they'd been when she'd taken them from the drawer this morning. She sat down to pee, relieved and confused. Had the bleeding feeling just been a phantom? Was this a new symptomy spike on the scribbled graph? A tactile hallucination? Hysterical menstruation? A delusion? She didn't want to be deluded. She left the stall and splashed cold water on her face. Her nose and forehead were still tender, and she leaned close to study the red mark on her forehead. One of the young publicists came in, high-heeled boots clicking on the hard floor and heading to a stall without making eye contact. There was a clattering sound of toilet paper unrolling, masking some human sound. Liza dried her face with a paper towel, then ran it over the back of her neck where the sweat had evaporated. Swimming. Dogs. Horses, if applicable. Books. Definitely books. All right, then. I'm ready. Kelly O'Hara performed Miley Malloy's period piece. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Actors who perform here at Selected Shorts often tell us that they look for personal meaning when they prepare for their readings. Kelly O'Hara says period piece really hit home. I'll be really honest. It really is about going over that bridge between being a younger woman and being an older woman. And it stabbed me right in the heart. And that's why then I knew I needed to read it. <laughs> because every single part of it it was like reading something about myself. So that was pretty impactful, what writing can do to put words to your thoughts. That was Kelly O'Hara backstage at Symphony Space. I agree with Kelly. The stab in the heart is the moment you remember in a short story or in life. Maybe it's the moment when you realize that you're older now and things have changed. Except I have this feeling, and maybe some of you have it too, that all the different parts of my life a little kid reading Charlotte's Web, 
a teenager using Clearasil, a young adult in a club dancing to the song Safety Dance, a grown woman with a baby strapped to her back, a middle-aged woman with regrets, an older woman with fewer regrets because the things we obsess about turn out not to matter as much as we thought. All those different segments of a person's life are like wooden Russian nesting dolls. Our current self is holding the previous selves inside it. You know the way everything is said to live forever on the internet? I think the different parts of our evolving selves live forever inside us too. They're never entirely gone. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achilles and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vida Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by the Isaiah Sheffer Fund for new initiatives. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space. <laughs>